This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. Welcome to The Wigs, I'm your host Jim Minns. In this month's episode, The Wigs deep dive into two topics. Firstly, the drama that has been dominating political headlines of late, that is, the revelations that former Prime Minister Scott Morrison secretly swore himself into multiple ministries during his term in office. The Wigs examine the facts that are known, the relevant legal principles, the applicable constitutional provisions and some related political issues. Secondly, the Wigs look at a recent decision of the New South Wales Court of Criminal Appeal in a case called Stewart, where the court applied the principles around when a plea of guilty and subsequent conviction can be set aside by an appeal court. The interesting facts of the case, including the court's finding that a solicitor entered pleas of guilty without taking instruction from the client. And don't forget, we have Wigs merchandise on sale for all you fans of the show. Head to diamantina.com.au forward slash the dash wigs or head to our Facebook page to pick up a very stylish barrister wig lapel pin. On with the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Wigs for another month. It's lovely to have your company once more. I'm your host, Jim Minns. On my left is Emmanuel Kirkasharian. Hi, Jim. Hello, Manuel. How are you? I'm very good. On my 12 o'clock, which I get correct the first time, Felicity Graham. That's me. This is not That's our me. take two, by the way. We, we, this is, yes. Please. I'm sorry. I just interrupted your mic time. Please introduce yourself. Just, just saying good to see you. Good to see you too. Looking fighting fit. Looking well. Excellent work. On my immediate right, I think. Hey, Jim. Stephen Lawrence. Mate, good to be here. Good to have you here. Hi, Wigs. Hello. Hi. It's Hi, great. Rick. We have a, a jam-packed episode that we're going to try and fit into our short amount of time in this studio, as per usual. Kicking off proceedings today is the Honourable... Do you guys get called the Honourable? My learned friend, whatever. That Not would, enough. Okay, they're fair, <laughs> fair call, fair call. Emmanuel Kirkasharian. Is that right? I mean, no. you first. No, no absolutely not. And I was just testing you, and you passed. Correct. Felicity... No, it is Stephen Lawrence is kicking off the show. Fell, mate, fantastic. Take it away, please. What is happening? <laughs> so I'm talking about uh, what's a pretty notorious issue at the moment, which is of course the quite alarming news that the former Prime Minister Scott Morrison, oh yes, in secret uh, over the course of 2020-2021, oh yes, appointed himself to. A number of ministries. I should know this. This is the topic that I recommended. Yeah, you did. All right. Now yeah. I, now it's all coming back to me. Right. That's why we have these production meetings that I never attend. Got it. Is that true that Jim suggested it? It is. Check the WhatsApp messages. Thank okay. you very much. <clears throat> um, yeah. So, look, it transpired that in addition to having been sworn in as Prime Minister, um, starting, I think, towards the beginning of the pandemic or the pandemic response that uh, Scott Morrison appointed himself all or arranged for the Governor-General to appoint him to the Ministries of Health, mm. uh, the Finance Ministry, the Industry, Science, Energy and Resources Ministry. I think that was one ministry. Okay. And Home Affairs and Treasury. Okay. Um, it seems clear on the media reporting, at least, that not all of those actual ministers knew that he'd been sworn in as the additional minister. Okay, additional minister. The additional minister. So you can yeah. have more than one minister. Yeah. Look, it's never really been something I've ever heard of before, mm. but it, there's, this whole issue was referred by the Prime Minister. The current uh, the Prime so- Minister? Yeah, by the current Prime Minister to the Solicitor General for legal advice. Mm-hmm. Interesting fact you can't refer hypotheticals to the High Court, can you? You cannot. Have you just been doing constitutional? Law? No, a couple of couple of sections ago. But I just mm. always remember that they don't deal in hypotheticals. Yeah, they don't. Mm. Yeah, even if they're super interesting. Yeah, most co- courts won't deal in hypotheticals. Right. Sure, it's not a judicial function. Yeah. Right. I just thought that was it's a judicial function to resolve disputes. Yeah, for yeah. the students out there, you know, like I'm just looking out for them. Take it away, Steve. Though sometimes there is statutes that might require that. Like, for example. Under the human various human rights piece of legislation, you sometimes have a court vested with a function to say if something breaches a human right, even though there's no immediate consequence to that. So that's sort of almost akin to like an advisory. Bit of obiter. Yeah. Also in corporations matters sometimes. There's a kind of... They give advice to corporations about whether something's lawful or not. Yeah, uh, okay. 
And then in international law, which Jim, as you probably worked out by now, is not really law. Oh, they give advisory. Sure thing. isn't. Yeah. So the Solicitor General responded with a lengthy advice, and he found that what had occurred was not unlawful mm. uh, in the sense that it wasn't a breach of any particular law. Mm-hmm. There'd been some suggestions, and maybe these suggestions are still being made, that it could have been a contempt of parliament. Okay. Because one of the the sort of weird features of this was that the whole thing was kept secret. Right. So, and that happened on a few, a few different levels. Uh, the Prime Minister didn't make it public. Uh, the Governor General didn't make it public. Mm. And the Governor General normally has a sort of administrative practice of sort of announcing his diary, announcing significant events that he does, which would include normally the swearing in of ministers or variations of the administrative arrangements. Now, is that just convention or is that written into his role somewhere that he has to do that? I think it's just convention. Okay. Yeah. And under the Constitution, which there's sort of not that many provisions that govern all of this, but... Section 61 vests the executive power of the Commonwealth in the Queen and makes it exercisable by the Governor-General. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, uh, the way that's interpreted is he acts on the advice of the executive government of the day, mm. but he he is vested with uh, the executive power. So he will do those sort of things under Section 61, I think. Mm-hmm. And then Section 64, which is probably the main provision that is sort of relevant here, is a provision that says, let me just bring it up. Oh, I've got a freeze here. That's annoying. The Governor-General may appoint officers to administer such departments of state of the Commonwealth as the Governor-General and Council may establish. Right. Such officers shall hold office during the pleasure of the Governor-General. They shall be members of the Federal Executive Council and shall be the Queen's Ministers of State for the Commonwealth. So officers... It doesn't say one officer per ministry. No, it doesn't. Ministers to sit in Parliament. After the first general election, no minister of state shall hold office for a longer period than three months unless he or she becomes a senator or a member of the House of Representatives. So that gives us responsible government in Australia. You can't be a member of the executive, a minister, unless you are a member of Parliament, Mm. Uh, except for three months which seems that you can appoint people who may be standing for election or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. sit for three months. Um, It's worth noting that what we think of as ministries are not really things. You have a bunch of acts that establish certain bureaucratic functions and the control of those acts are vested in particular people who are the ministers. Yeah? Yeah, and what I was talking about before about the administrative arrangements... That's basically an order that the Governor-General makes uh, on advice of the Federal Executive Council, which is the sort of embodiment in the Constitution of the Executive, because the Constitution doesn't talk about Cabinet or the Prime Minister, Mm -hmm. it just talks about the Federal Executive Council, which I haven't looked at the provisions, it's around 60-something too, but I think that is a body that can... I can operate and make decisions with like two ministers there or something like that. There's a okay. minimum requirement. Mm. So technically that fulfills the sort of duties of the executive government vis-a-vis the governor general. Yeah, but this administrative arrangement order, so there's a new one dated 23 June 2022. It creates ministry. So it sets out, as Manny said, which minister of state administers which department. Um, and it lists all the pieces of legislation that, that department or that minister, uh, rather, is responsible for exercising the powers under. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, these sort of executive departments of state are, I think, partly the product of the sort of executive power under Section 61, and then obviously partly the product of all the various different acts of parliament that, you know, create things that departments do and powers that ministers exercise, and ministers need departments to exercise their powers because they need people to advise them and people uh, to implement decisions and so forth. So if you look at the more recent one, which is obviously uh, the Anthony Albanese uh, executive, it's titled Administrative Arrangements Order. And then it says, the matters dealt with by a Department of State include, A, the matters referred to in the part of the schedule relating to that department. So there's a schedule to the order. And then it says matters arising under the legislation administered by a Minister of State administering the department 
So that's another schedule that lists all the acts. Mm. Um, so this is normally a public document. So if you want to know who's the minister for sure. what, then mm. it's, it's there on the Governor-General's website. It's there, I think, on the website of the Prime Minister and Cabinet. If you want to know what minister administers what department, uh, it's there in the relevant schedule. <clears throat> okay. So, so was there any evidence that uh, the Prime Minister and ministers exercised any of those ministerial functions? Yes. Yeah, so SCOMO... I think it came to light because of an example of that. So there's a, I think, gas company wanted to do some work in the central coast in New South Wales. Right. And a decision was made by the resources minister relevantly blocking them from doing what they wanted to do. I think it was the resources minister was allowing it to happen. So I think part of the factual background is that the publicly known resources minister... Oh, okay. ..who was a member of the National Party... Yes. ..was, I think, going to be more permissive. And then Scott Morrison took over the mantle and made the decision to block it. Right. For political purposes. The, uh, presumably. I don't know. Allegedly. I think he would probably say that he just had a different view of the policy merits of the question, but I don't know. Mm. And then a question arose in relation to this company wanting to then challenge that decision. Mm-hmm. Well, who was the minister ah. that made the decision and that then uncovered Scott Morrison's appointment uh, as the resources minister and then it was like pulling a piece of thread. Subsequent appointments. Wow. Or earlier appointments. Right. Now, why why be secret about it? I think... What are the well, merits of being secret? Yeah, I mean, there's a sort of a few different issues, I think. So one is obviously the principle of responsible government, which says that ministers or members of the executive are drawn from the parliament and are answerable to the parliament. And that has a whole lot of consequences in the sense that, firstly, their identity is known. It's always public who a minister is. They have to answer questions in parliament. So, for example, question time, according to very strong entrenched convention, they're available on a regular basis to be questioned. The various powers of parliament can be used in respect of them. Um, It's just a whole lot of transparency and accountability in that sense. Mm. Um, I think the other problem with secrecy is, particularly when the alternate minister is the prime minister, is you might have the minister making a whole lot of decisions and the public understanding that the minister is making the decisions. But where you've got an alternative minister who's a secret minister, it's going to be impossible to know whether, for example the substantive minister has only made the decision because he knows the alternative minister would have made a different decision if he didn't make a different decision. So you get this level of kind of, you know, secrecy that might mean that decision-making is actually being sort of constructively exercised by the alternative minister Uh because the real minister just knows what to do because if he doesn't do what is wanted by the alternative minister, uh, he's going to be countervailed. Mm. so I think that's a massive problem. What was was the justification that COVID scary? So yes, we need to be quiet about this because scary. Yeah, <laughs> that's what he I basically don't know whether said. The, was the secrecy because of COVID? He said that he had to do it because of COVID, because of the urgency, and people might get sick, and quick decisions might be required. I think, but that's, and that it would have caused consternation. Just to stop you and there, not being understood in the community. Notwithstanding that, that is the excuse. That was the excuse for the undertaking of the health ministry. How does that then extend to the subsequent other ministries that Flick was relating to? I don't know if uh, if his stated justification did only relate to health. I thought it was more general than that. Okay. But in any case, I mean, I just see it as complete bullshit. Okay. Because why would it have caused community consternation? I think if they'd put out a press release at the height of COVID and said, just to be super careful, the Prime Minister's going to be sworn into these portfolios, he'll only exercise powers if absolutely necessary... I mean, I think it might have passed almost without comment. I, think I reckon. That's probably right. Yeah. yeah. In those days where you could, you know, lock people up indefinitely in the houses, 
It's nothing. Mm. And it's not uh, an unheard of breach of convention, is it? Didn't it happen? Wasn't like Gough Whitlam uh, assigned every ministry when he first took office? So when Gough Whitlam first got elected, him and... Lance Barnard, I think the deputy, I okay. might have that yeah. name wrong, but I think they swore themselves into every ministry the for du- that intervening the period. The duumvirate. The duumvirate, yeah. yeah. And they made a lot of decisions. Like, I think they withdrew Australia from Vietnam. Yep, they withdrew the troops from Nam. They released all draft resistance, mm. everyone who was resisting the draft. They recognised communist China. Yeah. Um, yeah, and they held... but. I mean, it wasn't but secret. It wasn't, it secret. wasn't secret. Yeah. On the other hand, it was as presidential a government as we get. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wonder what the background advice to ScoMo was. Like, if you're a PM, you don't just go about and do this yourself. So what it, I've read is it was not not on departmental advice. Yeah. That it was advice from Christian Porter. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, and that it, it seems from what I've read that. This was very much um, a cabinet level. Not everyone in cabinet knew, but very much a sort and of top of the government decision. Could you tell us who, what Christian Porter's role was at the time? The Attorney General. So it was the advice from yeah. the Attorney General. Mm. Yeah. Which you might reasonably rely on if you're a Prime Minister, I yeah. suppose. Because there's nothing, having said all of this, there's nothing really untoward about it, apart from the fact that it's against convention and it's been kept secret. But there's no suggestion that he's misused the power. I don't think. No, but I think, as I was saying before, I mean, maybe it's hard to know yeah. because there's a sort of influence just by virtue of having the power. But, yeah, there's no specific legislative uh, provisions that he breached. And there's been talk about in the aftermath of this reform in the sense of, and I don't know where you'd put these sort of legislative requirements, what sort of act you'd put them in, but creating a legislative requirement for ministerial appointments to be made public, uh, for a register of them to require the Governor-General to do certain things by way of announcing Mm. them, these sort of reforms to avoid this happening again. Um, But, yeah, I think the the advice from the Solicitor General, as I understand it, was that no law was breached, but a deeply rooted principle of responsible government was breached. Mm. I mean, I feel like, sadly, these days, the discretion imposed on ministers is almost non-existent anyway. That is to say, you either follow your department's advice or you do what the PM's office politically requires of you if you're a minister and in some sense beyond that ministerial discretion has become illusory and also the subject of a lot of public criticism right because you know ministers nominally like it's not like in local government for example where like councillors are just like a board member and don't really have the power to do anything operational in a technical sense ministers are the executive power. So they can hand out grants, they can mm. interfere in employment matters in their department. They can, they can do a decide whole lot of whether someone's deported or not. Yeah, a lot of strong personal mm. statutory powers. But, you know, the public doesn't necessarily accept this unrestrained ministerial power these days. No. It's funny you should say that, though. At a state level, and maybe I'm the wrong person to comment about this, but there has been uh, some varied attempts at arm's length. Uh, decision-making from ministers at a state level in Mm. recent times, particularly around appointments of international trade roles where ministers seemingly had no responsibility over said decisions that would be made, and they were strictly public service uh, decisions. Like on paper. How much does that weigh up? Yeah, I think, you know, there's all these conventions, right, and some appointments are considered cabinet level, some appointments are considered public service level, and different sort of responsibilities are allocated like that there's this in abs- that way. There's this absurd meme in the sort of thought virus that has taken place which basically says we need independent decision makers for various things. And Ed, the more serious something is, apparently the more independent the decision maker needs to be, which is just bizarre in a political context where you've got people elected to represent the people and hence make political decisions. Mm. And it's just going across the whole of the government. And now we're almost at the point where if you are a minister, at least at the state level, and you don't follow the advice of your bureaucrats, you're liable to being hauled in front of ICAC and criticised for it, as if you're somehow bound by expert advice Mm. and not by your own political instincts. And and. Even base political yeah. instincts, right? Mm. So we're getting very close to certainly like a public view, a public 
um, you know, the public embracing the idea that for a minister to, for example, allocate resources on the basis of political imperatives is corruption. And, you know, that's a sort of evolving idea, right? Because I yeah. think for hundreds of years, that's been at the core of ministers' functions to allocate grants, to decide where mm. a hospital gets built, to do mm. this, to do that. But yeah, there is this increasing demand, I think, by the public that those sort of resource allocation decisions are made independently according, you know, maybe to criteria set by ministers or cabinet, but not in this hands-on then way. Then what are we voting for? Well, what, what, what you end up having is a loss of... That, that is effective end of democratic government and, in a sense, a technocratic government where only at the, you know, the furthest margins you have any decision-making being made by an elected representative. Mm. And then the question becomes, well, who is making the decisions? Who is applying the criteria? And who's lobbying them? Mm. Whose interests are they acting in? And I've got no doubt that the average bureaucrat is honest and forthright and, and doing the right thing. But as power is increasingly vested in them and they are protected and there's no, no one looking in on them, you have a problem. Mm. You know, you have... Mm. So it's like, if for those who watched Yes Minister, it's like Sir Humphrey Appleby without even having a minister on top of him. He's yeah. doing whatever he likes, you know? Well, it's interesting you should say that because when these uh, revelations started to appear in the last month, a lot of the ministers, supposed first ministers, let's call them, were... Didn't know. Yeah. They didn't know. No. The secrecy extended to cabinet, extended Mm. to, in some cases, the actual minister who substantively or publicly held the ministry. Which is maybe in one way a good thing, right? Because, harking back to what I was saying before... Then they can't be influenced. Then they're not influenced by it. If they knew, you can imagine they would have been second-guessing their decisions. Like, they sit in cabinet, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe they talk about things that are subject of ministerial exercises of power. And the PM expresses an opinion about it. And then they'll just think, oh, well, he's got the power as well, so I better do what he wants. So Mm -hmm. maybe it's in the context of a bad policy, not a bad little manifestation of it, but... But the whole thing is just crazy, and I don't know why they didn't publicise it. It makes you suspicious that there's more to it. Could the it? Fact l- that they didn't publicise. Could it, it lead to it, a situation? Oh, sorry, Flick. Too. I was just going to say, it seems to be a pretty easy fix, though. That there could just be a requirement in the law that changes to ministerial appointments or additional appointments to um, ministers have to be notified in, like, the federal register of legislation or mm. something like that. You is, know. Um, is there any indication that the Albanese government is going to put forward anything? Yes. No, is it's there. being looked at. Yeah. yeah, it's been... Well, yeah. they've launched... Instead of taking what was an excellent opportunity to have a Royal Commission into Australia's response to COVID, which just blows my mind that people don't want... Mm. We definitely um, should have that. I mean, it's some of the most important decisions ever made... Yeah. Well, ever made in my lifetime... And we need to know what we did right. Mm. Forget about what we did wrong. All the things we got right, mm. we should underline and put in. make sure we get right into the future. Yeah. Mm. And um, we did get a lot right. There are some things that we got wrong and should be exposed as well and yeah. properly ventilated, I think. But, and, and perhaps because we got so much right, there's a need to look at what we got wrong and why because I think there's a tendency to sweep away any kind of criticism of our response because it has overall been so incredibly successful and protected people and public health in such an effective way compared to what's happened around the world. And so there's this kind of tendency to not even permit any self-reflection or any, um, Mm. any contemplation that maybe we got some things wrong. Mm. And heal... You know, there is a sizable, not enormous, but a sizable part of the population that is troubled with the way the response was done. And you can heal by by sort of having mm. their arguments ventilated, discussed. Maybe there's something's right, but explaining why things are wrong, you know. Mm. You, you have that healing in the community that's just being avoided. And instead... What, what are we getting instead, Money? What are we getting instead? Well, we're getting a prime ministerial inquiry. Mm. What's that? Well... As far as I can see, having looked at the terms of reference to this thing... So it's just like an executive inquiry. Virginia no Bell has been commissioned by the Prime Minister and Attorney General to lead an inquiry into the appointment of former PM to multiple ministries. Yeah. I don't think it's established pursuant to any statutory powers. 
Mm, Certainly not a royal commission. And crucially, the terms of reference says Ms. Bell will report to the Prime Minister, Prime Minister, by Friday, 25 November 22. So we've got a former High Court Justice reporting directly to the PM. Not to his office, not to Parliament, not to anyone but him. But hang on. And presumably you're publishing. Reporting sheep, but reporting what? We've like already a report. got But we've already got the gate the, the the Solicitor General's already done that. Well and in fact the no, This is on COVID, right? No, no. No, no. 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 This is on this is Morrison. Inquiry into the appointment of the Honourable Strott Morrison MP to administer various uh, portfolios and related matters. But we've already done that. The terms of reference say that But I think the Donahue one was just on legality, whereas the Bell one presumably will be broader issues, right? Except that Donahue went beyond his brief. So is it Bell, Keith or Keane, or just Bell? <laughs> just yeah, right. Yeah. No comment. But but I mean Great it's joke. I don't understand <laughs> sure this at all. Uh, and I I'm deeply troubled by having a former justice of the High Court engaging in an inquiry like this. I mean it's one thing to have them do a royal commission or a statutory inquiry. And I don't know what Morrison or the Liberal Party's response to this would be, but they might just say, get stuffed, mm. you know? So I might just read a few things that the Solicitor General said in the legal advice, just to wrap it up, maybe. So in relation to Section 64, he found that it did empower the Governor-General to appoint more than one minister to administer, like, any particular government department. But in relation to the principle of responsible government, sort of question, he said, quote, it is impossible for the parliament and the public to hold ministers accountable for the proper administration of particular departments if the identity of the ministers who have been appointed appointed to administer those departments is not publicised. He found that there was no way the public could discern them from the ministry list or anywhere else, i.e. the secret appointments. Uh, he said the capacity of the public and the parliament to ascertain which ministers have been appointed to administer which departments is critical to the proper functioning of responsible government because it is those appointments when read together with the administrative arrangements order, that's what we are talking about before, that determine the matters for which a minister is legally and politically responsible. To the extent that the public and the parliament are not informed of appointments that have been made under section 64 of the constitution, the principles of responsible government are fundamentally undermined. Neither, quote, neither the people nor the parliament can hold a minister accountable for the exercise or just as importantly for the non-exercise mm. of, particularly statutory, of particular statutory powers if they are not aware that the minister has those powers, mm. nor can they hold the correct ministers accountable for any other actions or inactions of departments. So Which is the that's point, what Donahue said. It'll, it'll be interesting to see what Bell um, says. What, what if anything she can add? Mm. Mm. Maybe she'll inquire into like how it happened. Or something. Yeah. I mean, mm. all the... But, yeah, I don't know. If it's important enough to look at, it's important enough to look at on oath with, you know, a proper inquiry and as part of a broader inquiry. Because if this happened and we don't know about it, it just begs the question, what else happened? What happened mm. in the state governments? Were there similar things done around the country? You know? Mm. Yeah. I mean, there, there certainly has been some reporting about kind of secret things done such as police asking various different health departments across the country for check-in data for oh yeah police investigations yeah. Mm. for example and you know that's lucky that came out i remember when that came out as a news story that could have easily have not come out yeah totally that was really that was whoever whoever broke that one. If you're listening, good job. Sorry, I don't know who you I'm are. Sure, police aren't looking for the COVID app data because apparently you only track three people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the three people who took, downloaded <laughs> it, they're in trouble. No, we all downloaded it. Didn't work. Oh yeah, that's what happened. Welcome back to the Wigs. We're up to topic number two of two. Only two this month. What a shame, but still, you know, the legal stuff you're going to love, I guess. I, you wouldn't be here otherwise. Am I right? You can't talk back to me, of course. Oh, you guys, of course, in the room. Taking it away is Felicity Graham. We are going to talk about a case of Stuart and the Queen, a 
recent decision in the New South Wales Court of Criminal Appeal up next has some similarities to the topic that I spoke about last episode and in which we did a reenactment of the proceedings mm. in Dubbo Local Court. So, yeah, it has some similarities because it concerns questions of procedure in criminal proceedings surrounding the entry of a plea and some of the kind of formal aspects of how proceedings should run Mm. and then how they can go seriously off the rails if they don't. So Mr Stewart was charged with a number of offences arising out of some allegations in early 2020 um, involving a scenario where he had been uh, drinking alcohol, he'd then gone home, he'd been playing with a firearm, he discharged that firearm into some carpet in the home he was in. He engaged in certain admitted conduct in relation to an assault of a woman that was there and police were called. They then described what happened as a siege. That was in dispute. Mm -hmm. And there were two critical charges that were the sort of real substance of why this case went up on appeal. One was a charge relating to uh, sorry, using an offensive weapon with intent to prevent or hinder the, the lawful apprehension of himself. Mm-hmm. And the other one was firing a firearm at a dwelling house or other building with reckless disregard for the safety of any person. And that was specifically alleged as being firing the firearm um, at a school Mm -hmm. that was nearby. And there there were some other charges, but they were the two critical ones. The case travelled through the local court of New South Wales and then the district court and what happened in the local court in kind of very truncated form is that the solicitor that was meant to be acting for him and representing him uh, said that he was going to be pleading guilty to all of the charges That was also um, the position indicated by the prosecutor appearing in the local court. Although at no point were any pleas formally entered, um, either by his solicitor representing him or by him. Mm. And there was no reading out of the charges to him at any point, except for there was one mention of a damaged property type charge. Mm. The magistrate on hearing what the the two representatives said was going to happen, said that he accepted the pleas and committed Mr Stewart for sentence to the district court. And then in the district court, he um, was again never asked whether he was pleading guilty or adhering to those pleas of guilty that had apparently been entered and accepted in the local court and the sentence proceedings rolled on and he was sentenced to what's called an aggregate term of imprisonment where effectively one sentence is imposed for a whole range of offences. Oh, yeah. And he he raised an issue during the sentence proceedings, didn't he? Like said some things that sort of flagged this issue that it wasn't actually done on instructions. Totally. Mm. And the... um, Court of Criminal Appeal kind of extracts quite a lot of the different exchanges that occurred at different points in the local court and in the district court and also received evidence both in affidavit and oral evidence from Mr Stewart, from his former lawyer um, and from some other lawyers that have been involved in the case. 
And one of the things that um, Mr. Stewart did is that during the judge's reasons on sentence, he actually interrupted the judge twice, um, which is a pretty bold thing to do. Mm. Um, And the first time he asked if he could speak to the lawyer, his lawyer, Mm -hmm. and then on the second occasion when he interrupted, he said a bunch of things, including things like, I've explained my story to the solicitor. He's just not getting up and speaking for me. You know, that's why I sadly and rudely have to interrupt. I'm sorry for that. And then um, the, the judge adjourns the case and the solicitor comes back and says a number of things, including quite relevantly that some of Mr Stewart's instructions were in direct opposition to the idea that he pleaded guilty to this charge of... Um, using the firearm to prevent or hinder his apprehension. But the case kind of just still rolled on and he got sentenced. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things that the Crown in the appeal said was, well, he didn't protest earlier during the judge's Mm -hmm. remarks on sentence, Um, even when the judge had recited the charges and found facts in relation to the charges at the earlier point. And that was kind of raised with Mr. Stewart when he was being examined before the appeal judges. Was it judge alone? Yeah, so the sentence was... Oh, just for the sentence. Yeah, so just a judge sitting. And he said, it wasn't until I was being sentenced that I realised that, you know, what I mean, like, it built up in me just going, what the hell, Mm. you know? I mean, because you don't want to... You feel a bit intimidated being in a courthouse, but hang on a minute, this ain't right... You know what I mean? So it built, I let it build up in me for a while before I came out with it. I'm thinking, wow, what do I do here? They're just saying like like it's true. And then I love the appeal Justice court Kirk's, said, yeah. Yeah, yeah, many lawyers, let alone those accused, would hesitate before interrupting a judge delivering a judgment. The suggestion that the applicant would be intimidated from interrupting a judge who is sentencing them is entirely plausible and I accept it. And I think it's it's quite useful that there's this acknowledgement of the the power imbalance that exists there in this Rather than dismissing it or poo-pooing it. Yeah, and mm. that it, it's, it is a big step to um, to interrupt a judge. The other thing freedom's the, on the line, I guess. Yeah, well, the other thing that the appeal court said about his interruption and protest that he made during the sentence proceedings was that it was actually before the result had been pronounced. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like he was just... Raising an issue Mm. after having heard how long he was sent to jail and being disappointed by the outcome. Um, So that seemed kind of significant. But, look, the case, I think, is quite a good one for considering what not to do um, and also some tips for how to do things um, the right way when you're tasked with the the huge responsibility of representing someone in criminal proceedings. Mm -hmm. It's also systemic guidance though, right? Like we need to change our procedures in New South Wales. When I started practicing the ACT, you were charged when you first turned up either by the court or the prosecutor. So the charge was read to you. Mm -hmm. You were arraigned in the local court. I'm positive about that. Mm-hmm. Same then, in the Northern Territory. The, the entire charges and fact sheet is read out And then to the you. fact sheet, because I used to be a summary prosecutor in Canberra and I used to read every fact sheet onto the record. Mm-hmm. Isn't this? And then the accused themselves in other jurisdictions is asked to enter their plea. Mm. Like from, and there's this line from Kirby, like from the lips of the accused, mm. it's really important that the plea comes because not only is it a chance for the accused to stand up and confront their guilt and acknowledge it publicly, and that can also be something that then can be used in sentence proceedings in mitigation, although obviously they can rely on their lawyer representing them and entering a plea on their behalf. But, like, it eliminates but any also undue influence. stops things going off the, off the rails. Yeah, it eliminates yeah. things like confusion, uh-huh. mistakes, right. um, a later challenge. And change of heart. Um, change of heart, mm. yeah. I reckon you should get, there should be allocutions where the accused stands up and admits the facts. And I think mm. there should be a built-in discount for that. Mm. Like, if you allocute, you get 5% off mm. for doing it. Mm. 
That's interesting. Yeah. You know? I think the reason they don't do it in New South Wales, and I noticed this when I came to New South Wales, is time and resources. It's all the courts are busy, particular, what? you know, like the local courts and everyone rushes and it's just much easier if you've just got the lawyer saying you please to this, you please to that. It's much more, it takes a lot more time to arrange people. Except that the, under the committal procedures, mm-hmm. the court is at least supposed to read out what the charges are and receive the plea, whether it's from the accused themselves or their lawyer. But what happened in this case and what happened you would see every day is the way that charges are described is by way of these codes that the police have ascribed to them, uh-huh. which is Law an H code. number uh-huh. and sequence numbers. Mm. And you might oh, yeah. have 20 sequence numbers which, like, for example, in this, there were, I think there were 10 sequence numbers and they had charges ranging from assault occasioning actual bodily harm to these much more serious charges of um, using a firearm and um, preventing apprehension, hindering police to prevent your apprehension. Uh, and... Lawyers, the, the lawyers said, yep, sequences one, two, three, six, and nine, they're, you know, they're, they're going to be pleased to that. Mm. Now, the accused, who is the whole. Doesn't speak lawyer or police code. Yeah. There's no transparency. Really. No, no transparency. And I, I mean, I think it's really important to do both things. Sure, the court is assisted by knowing which sequence number you're talking about, but you've got to name what the charge is. My client Mm. pleads guilty to sequence one, the assault occasioning actual bodily harm on person X. Mm. My client pleads guilty to sequences three and four, you know, charges X, Y, and Z. Sequence two is being withdrawn by the prosecutor and then the prosecutor stands up and withdraws Mm. sequence two. And, yeah, anyway, I... I think it's worth noting a couple of other provisions of the Criminal Procedure Act, um, just for the the real procedure wonks out there. So this concerned committal proceedings, which doesn't require a formal arraignment process in the local court, although there is this requirement to to sort of name the charges so that they there can be pleas entered. Um, But there are two provisions um, once the case goes up to the district court or the Supreme Court, section 101 and section 103 that I think are worth mentioning. Section 101 is um, a provision that allows a judge of the district court or the Supreme Court before whom an accused is brought under a committal for sentence Mm. to order that the committal proceedings be continued before a magistrate if it appears to the judge from the information or evidence given to or before the judge that the facts in respect of which a court attendance notice was issued do not support the offence to which the accused person pleaded guilty or the prosecutor requests it or for any other reason the judge thinks fit to do so and then on the resumption of committal proceedings the proceedings continue as if the person had pleaded not guilty. And then section 103 is a provision that basically gives an accused person an automatic right Mm. to change their mind if they've Mm. pleaded guilty in the local court and been committed for sentence. So it it says that if an accused person brought before the district court or the Supreme Court under Section 97, which is the committal for sentence provision, um, changes to not guilty the plea to the offence on which the accused person was committed to the court, the judge must direct that the accused person be put on trial for the offence. In other words, you can automatically, without having to um, prove that there was anything that kind of corrupted the plea process in the local court, you can just change your mind and have a trial if you want to. Mm -hmm. I've always found that such a curious provision. Like in the context of a legal system that puts so much weight and significance to a plea of guilty and absent a provision like that requires quite a stringent test to be met to set aside a plea of guilty that you've then got this provision that as of right lets you change your plea upon committal and I've often wondered whether that plea can then be used against you like you've stood up in the local court and pleaded guilty to something Mm. and then you're set for trial like is that an admission must be Mm. yeah it's interesting isn't it Mm. 
correct. But anyway, I think these two provisions antiquated that provision. Also point out that once you get to the higher court, unless the court goes through the process of saying, do you adhere to your pleas of guilty that you entered in the local court? They can't properly engage mm. with these provisions because or, or give effect to them because they don't know. And if they don't ask, they don't know and they can't kind of um, give operation to these provisions. Sure. And in this case, I mean, which the Court of Appe- Criminal Appeal described as a remarkable one, the circumstances included that the lawyer who'd acted in the local court had told the officer in charge and told the prosecutors at the director of um, public prosecution's office that the client would be pleading guilty before he ever had any instructions to do that. And there's something really interesting in the judgment about that. So at paragraph 35, they say, sorry to interrupt, Flicky, they say, on his own evidence, which is consistent on this point with the evidence of the applicant, Mr. Uh, the solicitor, I won't name him, was acting without any instructions in communicating to the prosecution on these three occasions that the applicant would be pleading guilty. Even if he had had those instructions, by communicating these indications, he undermined the applicant's ability to seek to negotiate with the DPP as to what pleas of guilty might be offered in return for some charges being dropped. That ability has been given express statutory recognition in the provisions dealing with case conferences then they cite the relevant provisions of the, of the Criminal Procedure Act. I just thought that was interesting that the CCA is recognising... That you might withhold instructions anyway because, because you of might the negotiating still be able process, to which is get totally an advantage for your yeah. client. Yeah. Absolutely. So to go around in this casual way, it's obviously worse if you're uninstructed, but to go around in this casual way telling everyone, oh, this is just going to be a plea to everything, it's not really proper lawyering. In the context of the criminal law, no, it's right. And charge it wasn't negotiation is just totally central to it was, it was advancing your client's interest. Casual in this case, he sent emails, yeah, written emails saying my client's going to be pleading guilty to all the charges when he had no such instructions because mm. he hadn't even talked to him about it. Hmm. You know, I, I get worried that the EAGP process is treated. Sorry, the the early the early appropriate guilty stream process. So uh-huh. this thing we've got in lieu of real committals now, I think. There's because committals have been devolved into this thing, I think that there's this sense, paradoxically, instead of people coming to it with more preparation and taking more time, which is what its goal was, actually, and particularly on the defence side, people are doing far less work, Mm. right? You don't see all that many applications to call witnesses in the local court anymore. I rather suspect there's a lot less. I haven't seen Mm. the stats. But also you're trying to get this sense, well, we're going to cut a deal or we're not, and that's how we're going to go. And the whole thing's predicated. The extra funding is predicated. Like people say to me, oh, you know, there's lots of legal aid money for the for EAGP matters. And I'm like, what? I, you have to do at least a day or two's worth of work, even on the mm. smallest of briefs, if mm. you're going to properly deal with the EAGP process. Yeah. Mm. And I just worry that certain practitioners are not doing that mm. and they're treating it as just this kind of, oh, well, we know what it is. We'll tick the boxes, get our EAGP money and go home. Yeah. Is and that I've because always... of predetermined outcomes, that's easy work? Is that, is that the theory behind it? Yeah, so, yeah and, you're right. and in some sense it is easy. Like you, you can read a brief, your client's telling you they're guilty or they're admitting most of the facts, so you can tick it off and go on. But the whole point is you got to see you, whether you go, yeah. you look, you are read you every sure? page, you see, are you sure? Sure, is there some disclosure, misintroduce you a subpoena? Is there a witness you can cross examine? Wow. And you can do all of this before you get in the district court mm. to ensure that your client gets a great deal or a great trial. I think mm. human nature just foils a lot of these yeah. well intentioned legislative schemes. Some systemic stuff as well. So, for example, one of the other factors in this case was that. Um, the accused brother, who is in quite regular contact with him. So the accused was in jail during this process, right? So he met once with the solicitor um, when he visited him in jail. He then had some video link communication. He appeared by video link at court. Um, And then on the sentence day, the lawyer didn't come and see him in the morning or afterwards, but spoke to him during this period of um, adjournment when he was making these protests. But the accused brother was in quite regular contact with him and it appears that the accused brother was playing this role of somewhat of a conduit between 
the accused and his lawyer and kind of passing on messages and things. Mm. And the court was quite um, critical of that and said wise practitioners or even ordinary ones would also not place great reliance on employing a client's relative to transmit important and complex matters to their client. It's also confidential as well, isn't it? I love isn't Jeremy it? Coates. Justice sure. Coates writing in this judgment. But it's I, fantastic. I think there's a systemic a issue bench. at play, yeah. right? Because when someone is in custody, it's harder to communicate with them. Okay. Um, and it's quite common for people to be in in more regular contact with their relatives. Um, And I think there's, you know, I think it's quite common practice for relatives to call up solicitors and say, this is what he's saying or... Uh um, Okay. And that's that's a systemic problem, I think. So, So apropos of this conversation, have either of you ever had a local court summary hearing preceded by an arraignment of your client. Okay, so this is the other thing I wanted to raise, right, because the Criminal Procedure Act does actually have an arraignment requirement in it in respect of summary matters, and yeah. it is never observed in New South Wales as far as I can tell. 1922. Exactly. So if both the accused person and the prosecutor present at the day, time and place set for the hearing and determination of the proceedings for an offence, the court must proceed to hear and determine the matter. That's subsection one. But subsection two, Manny, absolutely. The court must state the substance of the offence to the accused person and ask the Mm. accused person if the accused person pleads guilty or not guilty. That almost never happens. So you would I've read never accused person to include solicitor, right? Yes, yeah, so or there's a provision in section 3 of the act it. that defines accused person to include in relation to summary offences a defendant and in relation to all offences where the subject matter or context allows or requires an Australian legal practitioner representing an accused person. So that can be achieved through the lawyer, but the court must state the substance of the offence to the accused person. In other words, it's they've mm. got it. They can't just say. Though they could say this, right? They could say, right. So we've got one charge of actual bodily harm. Twelfth of May, John Smith, victim. Uh, Mr. Lawrence, is that still a plea of not guilty? Yes, it is, and that would probably comply with that, right? Yeah, and arguably, that, that, yeah. That would yeah. be better than. Um, is it still a plea of not guilty? Mm. If the question is, is it still a plea of not guilty, that's not compliant. If there's no enunciation they need to of the substance of the offence. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you might get it in the two, but what happens when there's seven charges? Yeah, yeah. Never happens. Yeah, no, never happens. Yeah. Right? And it's not the substance. It's like three counts of intimidate. Mm. That's not the substance of the charges. You, it, it would at least have to include... The bare elements. Mm. So here's my question. I hope some magistrates. Also, you run, you run a hearing. And are they pleading guilty or not guilty? Ask the accused person if they're pleading guilty or not guilty. Mm-hmm. It's not. Yeah. Is this still a hearing? Well, exactly. I mean that. I mean, yeah. Okay. No, but, but I mean th- <coughs> this needs to happen at some point before um, the entry of the plea. I think. And well, mm. so so let's assume. That's well. I agree. I think I think you need to be arraigned before you plead, and I think practitioners should be saying, "And duck your head as you do it." Uh, is your honour going to arraign my client? Yeah. Right. Here's the thing: if you don't do it, and you lose your hearing, what's stopping you from going to either? If if you're never arraigned, you go to either the Supreme Court or possibly the District Court, and say. The local court lacked jurisdiction to hear my matter because I was never arraigned. So there's so it's a interesting new case on that, a... isn't there, that Nick Broadbent was in. So just before you go to Dean that case while you're judge. looking it up, so Section 59 of the Criminal Procedure Act is about the committal proceedings um, provisions and the information that the magistrate must give to an accused person, yep. either directly or through their lawyer. It includes, in part, written explanation of the committal process and, in part, oral and written explanation of the scheme in relation to discounts. Mm. And then there's an interesting provision in subsection 5 of 59, which is not mirrored in the equivalent arraignment procedure provisions relating to summary matters where it says a failure by a magistrate to comply with this section does not affect the validity of anything done or omitted to be done 
by the magistrate or any other person in or for the purposes of the communal proceedings. So there's a, a sort of a legislative yeah. well, we marker know- that it, it doesn't affect validity, but there's no such... Mm. Um, there's no such carve out or proclamation of non-affecting validity in the statute in respect of the arraignment procedure that's expected for summary matters. And let's face it, I mean, sure, committal matters, stakes are higher, but most people are prosecuted in the summary jurisdiction of the local court. So, so, that's where so I've got a case, guys. Are. I've got a case. Yeah. So Coles and DPP 2022, New South Wales Supreme Court 960. Mm. Um, the prob- so what occurred in this case was the appellant was charged with aggravated break and enter. Her solicitor, who is a Whigs listener, Mr. Stephen Keith Wright, Legal Aid Broken Hill, Sought and was granted leave to withdraw on the day. It was a committal matter, obviously, being a strictly indictable matter. Following this, the magistrate committed the matter to the district court for trial. The They put on a crimes appeal and review appeal. The suggested error of law was the magistrate's failure to ascertain whether the plaintiff was pleading guilty or not guilty to the offences before committing the plaintiff for trial. Section 95.4 of the CPA provides... Before committing an accused person under this section, the magistrate must ascertain whether or not the accused person pleads guilty to the offences that are being proceeded with. And what happened in this matter was she was unrepresented, solicited for the DPP, asked the court to commit the plaintiff. The court committed the plaintiff. Um, There was inquiries about legal representation. The plaintiff said that she had done everything required of her by the Legal Aid Commission and they would be representing her. These inquiry under Section 98 does not, however, relieve the magistrate from the mandatory requirement under 95.4. At no stage did her honour seek to ascertain, quote, whether or not the plaintiff wished to plead guilty in respect to the proceedings as was required by Section 95.4. So then it was committed for trial. Um, the plaintiff submits the error in committing the matter to trial without ascertaining whether the plaintiff was pleading guilty or not guilty. It was an error involving a question of law alone. Um, consideration... I'm satisfied in the circumstance of this case that leave to appeal should be granted. The magistrate failed to ascertain whether or not the plaintiff was to plead guilty. Um, I'm satisfied this was an error that involved a question of law alone. So just sort of extrapolating from that. I mean, I suppose you lose your plea of discount in those circumstances, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and Justice Yahia said, Before I make the necessary orders, it is important to note that committal for trials to the district court impacts upon the sentencing discount available to an offender on sentence. The application of the discounts is mandatory and there are no relevant exceptions in this case. So I guess kind of applying like materiality kind of principles, there's something lost in that situation, right? I can't quite find the provision at the moment, but there's a provision that requires accused who are charged with Table 1 offences, that is offences that you can elect to have tried on indictment. If they are unrepresented, they must be notified by the court that they can elect. And Mm. if they don't do it, then the court lacks jurisdiction. And there's a clear case on that. And you can actually- That's in Commonwealth matters, isn't it? In every matter. In Commonwealth matters, you have to, whether you're represented or not, specifically say that you consent to the jurisdiction, the summary jurisdiction in respect of matters where you can elect. But for state matters... If you're you're unrepresented, the court must inform you of your right to elect and several other requirements. So you've lost something there, haven't you? Well, you've lost your right to elect. And what happens is... Whereas in this other one, have you lost anything when you go to a hearing without... I suppose you've lost your right to plead guilty. You've lost your right to plead guilty. You've lost your, you know. Mm. Um, and so in that circumstance, and I did this, I had this happen recently in a case, you go to the district court and you say the local court didn't have jurisdiction, send it back down, and mm. it just happens. Mm. Now, I don't think you need, uh, if it is a jurisdictional issue, I'm not sure you need to go to the Supreme Court. Mm. I think you can simply say there was no it's hearing. It's a nullity. Yeah. Now, I don't know. It's I, an I, inferior I, court. Too, I, yeah, so, so yeah. it's worth... It's worth looking about looking at whether or not you can appeal to district court in that way, um, but some smartass is going to do it, you know, with some hopeless appeal to the district court. Yeah. They're just going to go well. Here are our grounds for appeal, but by the way, we weren't ever tried. Mm. Mm. 
So the principals aren't weren't really in dispute in this case, but basically there was an ultimate question of miscarriage of justice. The court was satisfied that that was met. You look at whether there's a sufficient question about the integrity of the plea um, or there's a real or tribal question about the guilt of the accused. Sort of both, isn't it? They look at um, both. Yeah. yeah, they particularly have a look at both of those mm. questions. The second one, though, isn't um, setting up some kind of really high threshold. It doesn't require the court to investigate the guilt or innocence of the accused. Mm. Um, but, yeah, in this case, the court was satisfied that there were some um, some real problems in terms of the the integrity of the plea being tainted, that there was a mistake or other circumstances infecting, affecting the integrity and um, that there was a miscarriage of justice that had been established by Mr Stewart. And so they, the pleas for the two, one, two charges that he disputed were quashed. Interestingly, I think also procedurally, because he'd been sentenced for everything by way of an aggregate sentence, even though he wanted to maintain some of the pleas of guilty that mm. he'd entered, the court quashed the entire aggregate sentence because it all had to be unravelled as a result and sent him back for sentence in relation to the charges he still maintained pleas of guilty to and then to be able to... Um, defend the ones he wished to defend. Mm. It's worth a read. Justice Kurt's judgment is is a joy to read. You can just taste his astonishment at what was going on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was good to see the applicant accepted above a solicitor. Just goes to show that courts yeah. won't yeah. just believe solicitors above your average punter. No, that's right. I, I mean, the, the, the court made findings that the solicitor's evidence was unreliable yeah. and that they accepted that what the accused said um, about key points was um, was accurate and to be accepted and even though some of the things that he said kind of were a bit inconsistent and didn't quite kind of fit together, they still overall accepted him on the, the key points. Can I just make one other shout out? Because when I was reading this, um, there's a really good paper that really came to mind and I think it's useful for particularly people starting out in the criminal law, um, but also good for more senior practitioners to reflect on. It's a bit of an old paper now. It was written by um, a solicitor who worked at the Aboriginal Legal Service, Silas Rajan, Mm -hmm. um, and it's called Things I'm Glad Someone Told Me (laughs) or Wish Someone Had When I Started. Oh, hell yeah. I've got to read this thing. It's a classic. It's a really good paper. It's beautifully written, Silas, um, who sadly passed away. Very, very young, and just it was most tragic because um, he had a lot to offer and was was going to go really far mm. as a lawyer. And um, yeah, I really recommend it to people. It's available online on the criminalcpd.net.au. Great, great legacy. Well, we're back. Fun things. Uh, Stephen Lawrence, what's your fun thing for this month? Jesus. Um, Okay. I've I've involved myself in this ongoing process of trying to save a park in Dubbo from development. Oh, nice. So I'm involved myself in that. I'm in the middle of a long, like, two-week trial too, so not too many other fun things going on. fun. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) I'm sort of – I haven't had time to look at my diary to work out the fun things I've been doing. Bummer. Go yeah. bring your diary with Pretty you to fun things. at the moment. Or at least you're having fun. Yeah. Oh, Am but... I having fun? I don't know. <laughs> bring that to fun things. Mm. Felicity Graham, what? I-, I believe you called me and said something like... <laughs> this is hell. <laughs> I hate our job. It's so hard. <laughs> <laughs> and then when I sort of tried to placate you and listen to you like a few minutes later, I hate our job. It's so it. hard. I need a new job. We need a new End show segment. That's what we need. Felicity Graham. <laughs> yeah, he what's really loves it. He really loves it. <laughs> he does. What's your fun thing? Look, I celebrated a birthday recently, mm. and listeners should know that the Wigs celebrate something. Celebrated. What was it? Our third birthday Three yesterday, birthday. wasn't it? Mm. Third so. year anniversary. Yeah. Awesome. Um, yeah. And I requested a cake in the form of a pterodactyl. 
Oh, yeah. Did you get it? Yeah, I did. <laughs> I love it. It was awesome. Thanks, Ed. Yeah. <laughs> he did a great job. Um, Why it, the pterodactyl? Well, last year was an echidna. Oh, okay. And it was just quite remarkable um, in the way that it had been executed. And then this year I was going to share my birthday celebrations with a good friend at the show, Christian Hearn's daughter. Yep. Who's three. Oh, I love it. And likes dinosaurs. <laughs> and I thought a pterodactyl would be like just that extra level of difficulty. <laughs> and I really wanted to see <clears throat> see it um, come to fruition, which it did. Love it. And it was delicious. Good. Manny Kekasharian. Um, I've had a significant hole develop in my diary and I'm going to enjoy a few days of nothing. Good for you. My diary so have I. That's my fun thing too. Oh God, We're going to share that it. together. I love it. Separately but together. Indeed. Yeah. Perhaps we should just hit a pub for a week. Yeah, you go one pub, I'll go the other and we'll FaceTime. We'll FaceTime. Great. <laughs> it's the modern age. Guys, this has it. been a bit of a low point of fun things over the three years. I don't know what's going on. No one's really come up with anything fun apart from a pterodactyl. Mate, I finished day. my exams. Okay, I'm yeah, having but... fun. I'm living life. I'm done. Just don't ask me any questions. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, all right, well, let's wrap it up there, Wigs. What another fantastic episode for a fantastic month. Thank you, everyone, for joining us again. Do you all live in Sydney now? You don't. I don't. I don't know. I can't keep track of all of you. You all, but you guys. You're in Sydney. Great. Great to have you back in Sydney. For those who live here. here. Well done. Congratulations. We'll see you next month. Wigs out. Bless. Thanks for listening. Please like the Wigs on Facebook at the Wigs Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, produced by Jim Mintz.